You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Our normal set of circumstances before we get to this week's guest, who, oh, by the way, was awarded a Purple Heart, finally, after a long overdue bureaucracy. Uh, We'll get to that story coming up in just a moment. But a reminder to everybody to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Please continue to leave Apple reviews. Give us a five-star rating. Tell us why you love the show. And I personally love the feedback, guys. I mean, it's just great to hear and see the reactions that you guys have to the show and uh, continue to send us uh, love notes because uh, it's why we do this show. It's for the audience out there. So we certainly appreciate it. Plus, it helps grow the show. If you guys would like uh, to take part in our Amazon promotion, you can go to our website at HazardGround.com. It's a really easy way for you guys to help out veterans charities all across America because you go to HazardGround.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It redirects you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Buy anything you want. Buy a lot of what you want. Why? Because we get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can watch all of our episodes there and download the Killcliff TV app because all of our episodes are available on Killcliff TV and their app as well to watch. And please go to killcliff.com for all of your clean energy drinks. Killcliff, see, this is the uh, Recover. This is one of my favorite drinks in the lemon lime flavor. Go to killcliff.com, uh, order all of your clean energy. Um, founded by a former Navy SEAL, a lot of their proceeds go to the Navy SEAL Foundation. Just a great company, uh, headquartered right here in the United States, in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, they make fantastic clean energy workout drinks, uh, a pre workout and a post workout that I just love. Plus, they have CBD if you guys are into that. All right. This week's guest is a retired Army staff sergeant who spent over 22 years both on active duty and in the National Guard, specifically in the Ohio National Guard. He's got three total deployments uh, overseas, including his final one to Iraq in January 2020, where, if you remember, a base was bombed in retaliation for the United States in a drone strike taking out Soleimani, Qasem Soleimani, uh, and Iran struck back at the United States and fired rockets at a base, and he was one of several soldiers uh, who was injured in that rocket attack, but it took him nearly two years to earn his Purple Heart that he was so justly due, and he finally got it. Here to tell that story is Aaron Futrell on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Aaron, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Hey, how you doing? Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, and full disclosure, uh, I read your story on Military.com, uh, and the author was a, it was a friend of mine, Steve Bainan, uh, who's also a former guest here on the show, uh, and I immediately contacted Steve. I'm like, Steve, I need to tell the story. Uh, what's going on here? And so we chatted back and forth, and he, he told me how great of a story it was, but I want to hear it from you uh, in your words. And, and, I, and I do say, and I don't even know if congratulations is the right word. I, I would congratulate you on beating the government bureaucracy that took so long to get for you and all the other soldiers in the National Guard um, who, who it took so long to get their awards. And I'll highlight this at the beginning of this and say, as a guardsman myself, you know, and somebody who did active duty uh, has had a lot of active duty time. Yes, when it comes to things like awards and high level awards, there is a sort of um, let's just call it a shaded view of guardsmen, and do they kind of really deserve the same sort of 
uh, things that active duty soldiers get, which is a ridiculous notion. It's stupid. It's archaic. It's draconian. It's machismo. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're better than you because we're active duty. I've done both. I mean, you know, I never thought I was a better soldier on active duty than I did in the guard just because I did it five days a week. Again, clearly a different conversation, but uh, I do want to say congratulations oh, for everything. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's I've, you know, being active duty, I was four years active duty and then 16 years guard. I've seen a little bit of both worlds. And uh, especially since, uh, you know, the war, uh, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, the guard has been asked to do a whole yes. lot on a whole lot less. And, and you can't, you can't say uh, enough about the guard, how, what they've done yeah. and to, uh, you know, step up to the plate, to hold full-time jobs, plus do full-time guard work. Um, because it is a, almost a full-time job, especially I'm in, I'm in aviation. And how much the pilots have to come in on their off time to, just to keep up flying, because they're they keep the same type of minimums that the active duty guys. Yes, yes. And most people don't know that aviation. Since I'm in aviation, it's crazy. Um, I'm also full. I'm also uh, a, was a full time federal technician before I was medically retired. Oh wow! So I worked full, I worked full time for the guard. So so I get a little bit of a little bit of both. So I was a guard civilian that's the best way to explain it so i got to see you know the m-day guys the, you know the one week in a month two weeks out of the year that's really isn't that uh, here's my cat hanging right. out. and that's <laughs> well but it's funny because you say that i mean i've been saying that for the last 15 years one week in a month my ass right like it, yeah. it hasn't that's not what it you've had to work hard over the last 15 years as a guardsman or reservist to hold to just one week in a month and two weeks during like you're literally dodging deployments oh, yeah. and missions and everything like it is it, to the point where it's like you you're you would be looked at as one of those you know blank bags you know s bags as we talk about who just you know is yep. is not really into what uh raising your right hand was all about if you've been able to avoid that and nobody has been able to so it's been a major major um initiative for the guard uh, and the reserves and how much they've asked of us uh over the last 20 plus years um to sustain this level of combat and operational tempo uh, that we've been under. And, and I did forget to mention, to your credit, among all the other things, you have written three books uh, on hunting. Oh, yeah. You're a big outdoorsman. And so um, if you just Google Aaron Futrell, you'll, you'll get his books to come up uh, on Amazon and everything else. So we'll talk a little bit more about mm-hmm. that uh, down the road, how you squeeze three books in there. But start back at the beginning. Uh, how and why did you join the Army? Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do after high school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, I went to... Uh, I went to a small private Christian school. Um, uh, I knew I was smart enough to go to college. Uh, I had a great, good, great, good grades, and I was definitely, but I had no idea. So I'm like, um, I could either go to college, take out student loans, waste my time for the first few years and figure it out, or I could, you know, join the Army and see the world and get the GI Bill and figure out what I was going to do four years later. So my best friend enlisted, you know, the year before since he was a year older than me. And so I decided, you know, why not do that? Go join the Army, you know, go see the world. Do something instead of, you know, get four years in debt or probably end up being six years. because It would take me two years to figure out what I wanted to do. And, you know, so I enlisted, became a uh, ammunition specialist and... My first duty station was in Misau, Germany, in the 23rd Ordnance Company. Wow. So went to basic, went to basic training, uh, what was that, two weeks after graduation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. My mom was pretty surprised when I... And so wait, <laughs> I have to ask, so were you at Redstone Arsenal or were you at Aberdeen Proving Grounds? Uh, Redstone Arsenal. Okay, yeah, because you're a, you're a munitions guy, not a not a maintenance ordinance guy. I'm an uh, ordinance by trade is what I was branched oh, okay. coming out of yeah. college. But I was, uh, we're close to the same age and have both spent the same amount of years, but my first class was the first year that they combined um, the maintenance and ammunition for the officers. I think the enlisted is still separate. Um, but okay. It can, they used to used to be able to branch into the maintenance world for officers in the ordnance field or into the munitions world, and they oh, used yeah. to be two separate MOSs. They got combined into one, and I was the first year that that first year group that that had happened. So I did all my ammunition training because I got both of them at Aberdeen Proving Grounds, where my my basic course was. So, um, but I guess yeah, I mean Redstone is still the home of Army munitions, if you will. Uh, oh, yeah. And has been since World War II, so make it that what you will. Um, so when you get out, you end up going to – like you knew nothing about the Army getting in, I guess, right? No, I did, knew very little. Um, I had no, not very many people were in the service. Uh, my grandpa was – he was uh, in the Navy during uh, uh, Korea. Um, my uncle was like – you know, and I had uncles that were in Vietnam, but my dad never served. He got his draft card like the last year they had the draft. So he didn't even have to report to anything. So, um, and this is pre nine eleven, obviously. Oh yeah, pre nine yeah. eleven. So, um, yeah. So I signed under uh, Clinton was president. It was you know when I was in AIT is when they had the election and you know there's all the hanging chads and yep, everything. I didn't yep. know who was going to be president. We were such fools. <laughs> so, what did we know? What did we know? Our yeah, late nineties, like, early two thousand signees. What did we know? Yeah, it was like you know. It's pretty safe. I'm not, you know, what am I going to do? I'm not going to go to war. No. Never had no idea anything was going to happen. Yeah, boy. You no, know, we hadn't had a, the last conflict was Grenada. Right. And that wasn't even part of anything. <laughs> and um, what was that? Yeah. I mean, other than that, it was yeah, Somalia, Grenada obviously. Yeah, Panama. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. still, you know, I mean, mm. kind of crazy times. So you get to Germany. Is that where you are in 9-11? Uh, yeah, I was in stationed in Germany, but I was actually TDY in Slovenia at the time. Oh wow! Um, they were switching out heli- they were switching off helicopters in Bosnia. Um, so they were unloading helicopters off of a boat. I was, you know, they needed guys to pull guard duty on this port, so I volunteered because it was needed something to do. It was, so it sounded like fun. So um, they just. Unloaded a bunch of helicopters, flew into Bosnia. We were waiting for helicopters to fly back in, and they were going to break them down and load them on a boat and ship them back to the U.S. And I was sitting at this front gate, and all of a sudden, um, one of the MPs that were helping us came running out and said, nobody comes in, nobody goes out, there's just been a terrorist attack in the United States. And I'm wow. like, what is going on? And we didn't know anything. I didn't. That's all I heard for like the next like by hour and then slowly information is trickling in that uh, they flew planes into the world trade centers and then later on they flew a plane into the pentagon and i'm just sitting there not i didn't even see footage for the next probably three or four hours until my shift was over and then i was able to finally go in and um like actually watch cnn and actually see the footage, see what was going on. And everything was kind of surreal being in a foreign country on a makeshift base. Um, and the one thing that still sticks out in my mind about that day is um, me and this young, 
Filipino butter bar. We're standing there on looking over the Adriatic Sea on this port, and he looks at me. I'm a young PFC, uh, been in the Army not even a year and a half. And he goes, you know what this means, right? I'm like, what? He's like, we're going to war. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and we just, and that's all we said. We just stayed out there and looked at the sunset. And we're like, yeah. And it's like, that sticks out in my mind is like, that's, that's the day like my, like my life changed. Like everybody's life changes. It's like one day you're just me and this lieutenant looking over the Adriatic Sea at the sunset, realizing that, you know, my career is totally going to change from, you know, being a time of peace and a time of war. And I kind of, that's kind of been like the moment that I kind of uh, like bookmark in my mind as September 11th, knowing that the uh, planes at the World Trade Center and that's kind of turning the page from peace to war is that that scene of just me and this lieutenant. I don't even know his name. I can't even remember. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, wow. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so quickly, uh, how quickly do you get to work? Because your first deployment on active duty is in Afghanistan, correct? Correct. Um, Then I went after the, uh, so it was another two weeks and two, three weeks in Slovenia. I don't remember. We go back to Germany and then, you know, things are crazy there because it's a big, we're we're in the largest ammunition dump outside the United States. So uh, we just start packing ammunition. It's just like one after another, we're just packing mill vans and everything, getting ready for Afghanistan invasion. And then I'm there another year. And then we start getting everything after that. It starts rumblings about Iraq. So we start getting stuff packed for Iraq. Just we're working uh, pretty much 24 hour ops um, where we're working 10 hour, pretty much 12 hours on 10 hours off with like an hour in between each shift. Um, Just people would bring ammunition to the railhead. And then we'd pack it in uh, shipping containers, just like nonstop. During the day, they'd pull the ammunition. At night, we'd pack it in shipping containers, and that's all we would do. We did that for almost three months straight without a day off. And then by that time, it was time for me to PCS back to the States. So then I cleared for a month and then went to PCS to Fort Bragg. I arrived in Bragg and got to my unit, the uh, 8th Ordnance Company, arrived to my platoon is like hey we're going to afghanistan in a month you want to go i'm like oh, wow sure <laughs> i had nothing else to do what i was going to do sit around brag and not do anything and be part of the rear detachments which i knew would have been boring so um i went to afghanistan so as soon as i showed back in the states was there a month and shipped off to afghanistan where i went to uh worked in the asp in bagram for uh i think it was six month rotation now what was that like that was hot, <laughs> but hot is um, in like action hot or hot is in just like temperature hot. Temperature hot because oh, okay. Bagram Bagram at that time so it was uh, 2003. It was mainly controlled by the Northern Alliance, gotcha. so mm-hmm. it, Bagram was relatively peaceful at that time. So we got mortared once, I think once while I was over there, and they barely hit the base. I think it landed like 150 meters outside the wire. And there was like a guy shooting sniper shots once. So entire six months, there was two incidents on base and in six months. And other than that, there was nothing. 
And the only other incident was a guy decided to drive his Humvee outside the, you know, outside the barbed wire and hit a landmine. So, you know, because he was stupid, a guy in our battalion and messed up the front of his Humvee. Other than that, it was, you know, from like enemy action, there was nothing besides, you know, when guys would go out outside the wire. Now, how long were you there for again? Six months. Um, before a guard, actually a guard unit replaced us. They were from uh, Pennsylvania, I think. I don't remember, but um, over there, I did. We shipped ammunition all over Afghanistan, and um, and then supplied all the uh, Bagram units because everything was flo- everything was flown into Bagram then. So all the big, you know, uh, C not C one thirties, but the C seventeens and C threes or whatever, because it was the only one place with the big airstrip. So they flew all the ammunition in. We unloaded it and then put it on the smaller planes or helicopters, and they flew it out to the um, like the Kandahar and all the smaller fobs. So, so you get so this is two thousand three, correct? Um, correct. Yeah, I mean, and let's just timeline it for civilians who don't remember, right? I mean, yes, it was hot in late 2001 and 2002 because that's where the initial invasion started. By 2003, obviously, the focus had shifted to Iraq and Afghanistan was sort yeah. of, like, at that um, point in time, a little bit of an afterthought. More, yeah, to add more of a timeline to that, the day we, was our deployment sh- had to shift two weeks because of the invasion of Iraq and there were no planes for us. So as they were pushing <laughs> north out of Kuwait um, into, into Iraq... Uh. Um, is the day we shipped to Afghanistan. It's like when we shipped to Afghanistan. Priorities, And so right. it delayed us a week. So I don't remember much about the initial Iraq invasion because I was in Afghanistan, and we didn't see. I didn't see much of it. So, right. like, news-wise, I'm kind of blind, blind in that area because, you know, I was focused on other stuff over right. there, and you don't see a lot. Uh, so I remember, like, the first week of the initial push, and that's about it because then we jumped on a plane and they flew us into Bagram. You, you, you have missed uh, shock and awe. Uh, you, you missed yeah. both of them. They both, <laughs> they both sort of flew you by for, in exchange for uh, boredom and quiet uh, yeah. in, in Afghanistan and, at that point in time. Yeah, and Afghanistan at that point was really was, – at least Bagram was quiet. Talking to some of our other guys from our unit who were in were in Kandahar. Kandahar was a little bit little bit crazier. They got mortared a little bit more, and they got shot at a little bit more, but still not as much as you know later on in the conflict where Afghanistan became more of the Wild West and Iraq was a little bit quieter. Sure, sure. All right, uh, you get back in late two thousand three, right after six months there. Did you feel like? Your time there was like useful. Did you feel like what did I just do for six yeah. months? So that was I really involved in anything? Like, what was your thought and your mindset after? I feel like um, you know I've done my duty. You know, I joined the army to you know serve my country. Mm-hmm. I you know I thought my most of my service was done in Germany, packing up all the ammunition for the Afghanistan invasion and the Iraq invasion. Then I went and I deployed to a foreign country. Um, I gave ammunition to the Navy SEALs, to the special forces, to the infantry. I made sure they were all supplied with the ammunition. I, you know, did their turn-ins. We had uh, missions where we had to go to the ASP in the middle of the night and for a mission for the special forces where they had, you know, they needed a whole bunch of C4 that they needed resupplies. So we went and did that for them. So we had missions to do and take care of. 
it's just we weren't getting shot at that much but it's not like we didn't have stuff that we needed to do and it's not like we didn't feel important and that we weren't doing our job because we definitely did that and it was wasn't like we were just sitting around on our thumbs all day it was like we we did our job and we you know did it well and we you know felt accomplished at the end of our mission then we came back and something you know i definitely felt proud about it and what i did and when i got back got back to brag you know what i've my four years was just about up i can but like you know i've done my four years i'm ready to go back to ohio ready to you know ets out of the military i've done four years i think i'm ready to go to college maybe become a police officer or go get my college education i can say you know i've earned my gi bill i'm done with the military i'm proud to have served um you know, I've done my duty. I'm ready to get out. So that's what I did. You know, you know, four years is, is good service. You sure. know, and a lot yeah. of people have done that. No, I mean, listen, it's <laughs> not everybody has to do 20. Not everybody's meant to yeah. do 20. Not everybody needs to do 20. Um, there's a, a lot, certain. I know tons of people that haven't done 20. No, like, and, a lot and of Look, from a holistic standpoint, turnover in the force can actually be a good thing, right? Like, I mean, oh, yeah. you, you need to keep things fresh. And while there's a mm-hmm. certain contingent of people who will do 20 years and probably beyond 20 years, there's another contingent of people who do their enlistment get. Look, you honored your commitment. Nobody can say otherwise, right? You didn't yep. leave early. You didn't get kicked out. You, you, you signed on a yeah. deadline. You did exactly what you said you were going to do. And that's yeah. more than a lot of other people are willing to do. So, and, I've, and I felt like I've done everything I needed to do, you know, by I deployed. I've been to foreign countries. I saw the world. Mm-hmm. When I was in Germany, I traveled to, I don't know, every single country that bordered Gen- Germany, plus some. You know, I, the Army treated me well. I earned you, my money you were all you could be, like the old slogan yeah. said. You, you, yeah. you, you beat all you could be. Yeah. So uh, I ets um, You know, my but first no, sergeant so- commander did all they could to try and keep me in, but <laughs> like, <laughs> it was like, our MOS was over strength at the time. So right. they were, they were like going to have, they were reclassing everybody. They weren't letting people reenlist in their own MOS. So he pulled out the list of MOSs that I was qualified for. And he's like, you're qualified for absolutely every single MOS on the list. It's like, you can pick anything. I'm like, no, nah, I'm ready to get out. I'm going to college. That's what my plan was to begin with. So I left. Um, Went to college, and after about a year and a half of college, I kind of missed the Army. And then I realized that um, the Ohio Army National Guard offers 100% tuition payments. Ah. And that I can, yeah, I'm like, they'll pay 100% of my tuition, and I can just pocket the GI Bill. And they'll pay me to go to school. And I only have to serve one week in a month and two weeks out of the summer. Um, so I talked to my friend that was in the guard and he hooked me up the recruiter. And so I'm like, this is crazy. Why don't I do that? And I'll just get paid to go to school. So after a year and a half break in service, I reenlisted in the national guard, but, um, they didn't have my MOS. Right. Unless I wanted to drive, uh, four hours to go to drill. And I'm like, no, that's crazy. I'm not going to do that. So what jobs do you have opening and what's the one with the shortest, um, uh, yeah, the shortest reclass and they're like truck driver. I'm like, Nope, I'm not being a truck driver. (laughs) (laughs) They're like aviation operations specialist. I'm like, what's that? 
They're like, it's kind of like an air traffic controller, and it's four weeks. Like, sounds good. I'll go join aviation because I hear that's kind of relaxed and chill. And it's 15 minutes from your house. I'm like, I'll do that. So that was pretty much my selection. I'm like, I'll do, I signed up for three years. That was like, that'll give me, you know, enough of the college to do all but one year of my degree. Right. And see if I like it. It's not a huge commitment. It's not the whole another six years. And then, and I can make a decision after that if I want to stay in. And we'll go from there. What's three years of one week in a month? One week in a month, two weeks out of the year. And let's go from there. So I joined the Guard, went to the school. It was pretty easy. I Mm -hmm. liked my job. Wasn't hard. Wasn't difficult. It was kind of, it's kind of office work. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk on the radio, you maintain flight records. Um, and you flight follow aircraft. You as they fly around, you talk to them on the radio and write down where they're at in case something bad happens to them. There you go. It's pretty simple. So it's not hard. Uh, that turns yeah. into uh, another sixteen years of your career uh, and a couple more stints of overseas. And, and while I don't want to gloss over that service because it is important. Uh, in, in the meantime, again, Dick, you're, you're doing a civilian job, uh, working full time for the guard as a technician. You're writing yeah. books on the side. You're doing all these things, and you know you don't have that without the flexibility that the guard um, provides you. Uh, but I do want to get oh, yeah. to you know you're at the tail end of your career here, and you get notification you're going to deploy to Iraq of all places in 2020. This is now, by my watch, almost nine years after the war had ended. Right? At least eight years after the, oh, yeah. the war, in, war in Iraq had ended. Why do I know that? Because I was there for the official end. Uh, I was there in 2011 <laughs> when they closed everything down. Uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, now, and I think at the time, and somebody may correct me if this is wrong, but after the, the, quote, war had ended, uh, we had the largest State Department in the world sitting in Iraq. And by that, I mean by sheer numbers. I think it was over 2,500 people uh, in the State Department, 2,500 soldiers, including not including all the State Department personnel themselves uh, who were there. So we had still had a presence on ground of, of troops. Uh, but when you hear that you're deploying to Iraq, are you like, why? What are we doing? Like, what, what are we going there for? Are you curious? Uh, well, I knew about ISIS um, because when I was deployed in Kuwait in 15, we reopened, um, half our other battalion reopened Taji when we were there. Uh. So so we knew, all, I knew all about that. So, um so, like, uh, our first sergeant, who I worked with at the flight facility, who's now a sergeant major, um, he pretty much um, reopened the airfield Vantaji. He rebuilt half the, rebuilt half of it. Wow. So, I kind of had a general idea of what was going on. So, it, you know, but I still thought it was going to be kind of a lackluster deployment. It was going to be go over collect my tax-free money, chill out, um, run aviation operations for the medevac. Um, nothing much is going to happen and just kind of chill out, go work out in the gym, lose some weight like I did the last deployment. And, you know, I wouldn't say have fun, but make the easy tax-free money. Yeah. Like, like you do. Um, 
So <laughs> you're going over there. I mean, outside of all those things, what is the specific military mission you have while you're there? Uh, I was assigned to the uh, third of the 238th medevac. So our mission was provide medevac support for Iraq. Um, our uh, company was made up of three states. It was Ohio, Michigan, and New Hampshire. Okay. Um, we're a Black Hawk medevac uh, company. So we're part of, we were assigned to a GSAB, the General Aviation Support Battalion, um, which also had Chinooks and a couple of assault uh, elements to it. And I believe there was also an, a, um, an attack with the uh, active duty attack element also assigned with the Apaches. But mainly with the medevac, you're kind of, kind of a little bit, you feel like you're kind of on your own because we were, uh, we were divided up into six sites um, in Iraq, Jordan, and Syria, um, um, providing medevac coverage for pretty much the entire theater. Um, we had, you know, assets all spread all over, and we worked in conjunction to provide medevac support for all the units that were in country. So if something happened where somebody was injured or something happened at the hospital where they needed a patient transfer back to the main hospital, which was in, located in Baghdad, we would pick up the patient from either at a field site or at a hospital mm-hmm. and coordinate with our other units. Like if they were all the way up in Syria, um, the helicopter would fly down from Syria to right. say us, which are in Al-Assad, which is like one of the middle sites, yep. drop it off to us in Al-Assad, we pick up Al-Assad, fly it to Baghdad, or some other, you know, route, mm-hmm. like or like in Erbil, they'd fly straight to Baghdad, sure. or we'd, you know, so wherever it. somebody was injured, we would get them to Baghdad. Makes sense. Where they, where they could, you know, you know, receive the best care possible. When do you arrive in country? I arrived in country in December. Okay. So this it was is- December 19th. December of, of 2019. Now, okay, yeah. um, there had been some escalating tensions all across uh, yeah. Iraq and the Middle East at that point in time. You know, and, and just let's, I, I just want to lead up to the steps here so everybody kind of okay. understands how this goes. You know, um, the United States had backed out of the Iran nuclear deal uh, in 2018. Yep. Um, and they had reimposed sanctions and accused Iranian elements of, of – uh, you know, beginning a campaign to harass U.S. forces in the region 2019. And then in the late December 2019, K-1 Air Base in Iraq um, was attacked, killing an American contractor. You were actually were you on ground for that? Yes. OK. Yeah, we were uh, we were providing Medifact support for that, actually. Really? OK. So, yeah, we heard the call. I actually heard the, the call for that come over the radio. We didn't. Res- um, my my Al-Assad didn't respond to that. Another uh, uh, one of our other units responded to that Mm -hmm. and they were actually the helicopter was flying to come pick him up and we got the call told the helicopter to go turn around because we got the call uh, no patient on board and as soon as we heard no patient on board we knew what that he would that he died right so 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 uh, so that's like oh that's not good so (laughs) um and then united states retaliates there they they do strikes across Iraq and Syria. They, they, they kill some Hezbollah militiamen. And then yep. um, days later, the Shia militiamen retaliated by uh, attacking the U.S. Embassy in the Green Zone, uh, which yep. is right central to uh, Iraq, or Baghdad, yep. rather, on the meeting of the yeah. Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. So all yep. this had been leading up to what had been going on. Um, and then yep. on January 3rd, 
Qasem Soleimani, who's an Iraqi, uh, I'm sorry, an Iranian major general, was killed at a drone strike at Baghdad International Airport. Uh, yep. And Soleimani, obviously, bad dude from Iran. Um, mm-hmm. And the United States sort of justified the attack, saying it was necessary to stop another imminent attack. Um, but nonetheless, it was sort of this back and forth, tit for tat escalation of attacks. Then, where this is all leading is what happened to you guys. Uh, and I think it was on, I want to say, January 15th was when it was. Is that it? No. January was, 8th? Uh, it started on January 7th okay. is when we got news of it. So I'll start on January 7th. Okay. The attack actually took, started on January, was on January 8th. But we, uh, so it was January 7th. Um, I was working uh, the night shift. So I, so I woke up about four o'clock in the afternoon and I'm getting ready to go eat, uh, eat dinner. So I walk out like I normally did and everybody is running around like crazy. And my one, uh, she's uh, one of our medics, comes up to me and say, something's going to happen today. Um, I don't know what. They, we got to pack a four-day bag. We may be evacuated. I don't know. And then she takes off to her room. I'm like, what is going on? And so I go into our ops, and it's just going nuts in there. So I finally figure out that, Supposedly something's happening tonight, but nobody knows what. And um, it's my favorite kind of intel, I, by the way. That's my favorite yeah, kind of it's intel. It's like something's happening. Something's going to happen, but we don't know what. And finally heard that Iran is supposed to retaliate, and that's all we know. And you know, um, they want us to, you know, like get the helicopters out of there, and like. So like okay, and I'm not sure. Really, might not have to edit that out. I'm not sure. <laughs> You'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, so they told me, okay, go get Chow, and um, want you to probably come on duty a little bit early to you know help the guy that's on ops right now. So. And, you know, have him go get Chow and, you know, kind of hang out and just help with stuff as we coordinate everything that's going down. So we end up, so I end up going to eat, getting my stuff ready, making sure everybody's taken care of, you know, help with the logistics and everything that's going on as we try and figure out what we're going to do. Because platoon sergeant, or platoon, well, the platoon leader is getting pulled like 50 different directions. And then the assistant platoon leaders, he's kind of frazzled doing the same exact, exact thing, trying to figure out what he is. He's leaving, trying to make sure everything's okay. And it's like, nobody knows what's going on. And we're trying to prepare for like 50 different contingency plans. It's, it's, it's just nuts. Finally, helicopters leave and it, we come up, we come up with, up with a plan because we don't know what's going to happen. We're here. There might be a ground assault. We might hear there's going to be a rocket barrage. We're thinking indirect fire, like two rockets, because that's the last um, thing that happened to the base, which was in November, which um, the last group that we were uh, relieved told they shot five two rockets from the, the town that's uh, next to Al-Assad. Uh, I think it was four or five Katusha rockets they shot over. It didn't really hit anything. So we're thinking, okay, 
Um, that's probably what's going to happen. Indirect fire and maybe the um, Shia militia group that's stationed right across the airstrip is they're going to try and do a ground assault across, or maybe the Shia militia group that's like infiltrated the town is going to rush the front gate. Maybe something like that. That's all we know because none of the information has filtered down to our little compound because we're kind of um, all by ourselves. Um, um, because being medevac, we're kind of separated out from the rest sure. of the base. Right. We're, on our own little, we're on our own little compound on the airfield. We're separate from the Army guys. We're right. separate from the Air Force, which is has its advantages. So we're kind of left alone. Right. But in this case, it's kind of a disadvantage because we've got no information. We got no information from our battalion because they kind of forgot that we were there. Um. We just got stuff over Merck and a little bit of afterthought. Oh, yeah, we have guys that are at Al-Assad. We're like the only group from our battalion. And I think they do have some drone guys from our battalion that they notified right. about this. Okay. So, but anyways. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when do you start recognizing that the actual attack, the 15 ballistic missiles that are being launched, uh, is happening? Like, how does all that unfold? All right. So we got word that at at uh, let's see. I gotta get my timeline straight. So they're like, okay, at uh, eleven o'clock, well, twenty three hundred. You guys need to be in a bunker. We got that. We got that word. Eleven o'clock. You need to be in a bunker. So we our uh, platoon leader identified two bunkers that we're going to split um, the guys up in um, on either side of the talk. Um, okay, this half goes in this bunker, this half goes in that bunker. At 11 o'clock, we'll be in there. Everybody, you know, full battle rattled, you know, full load of everything. We'll hang out there and wait for more information. And, you know, and we'll go from there because that's all the information we got. So 11 o'clock, we get the, we get the word, we hear it over the loudspeaker, seek shelter, seek shelter. So, um, by that time, we changed one of the bunkers. We moved from one bunker to another, to two separate bunkers. One of them was the same bunker we identified, but he decided since it was closer to our uh, living quarters that had a bunch of HESCOs around it and seemed more defensible if there was a ground attack, we moved to these other two bunkers. So we moved to these other two bunkers and split up the group and both take shelter in there. And we sat there and waited. I mean, are, is there any part of you that's, that's nervous or scared at this point in time? Yeah, of course I'm nervous. I'm nervous because I have still, it's like the unknown. It's you have like, no idea what's going to happen. You don't know what's going right. to ha- happen. Um, I ended up, I did get a chance to call my wife before that because I'm, I'm nervous about it. So I ended up calling my wife and told her, um, Something's going down. Something's going to happen. I have no idea what. Just please, um, just like pray for me. So I was definitely nervous about that. So I did. Uh, I did give her a call and just told her that something's happening because I was definitely nervous about that and a little bit scared. In retrospect, do you think that was really a call you should have made ahead of time? <laughs> <laughs> um, in retrospect, maybe, but I felt I had to. <laughs> Gotcha. If you know, I was, you know, 
if you kind of think it's the last time you're going to talk to somebody, you sure. kind of do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it, <laughs> listen, you don't always get that opportunity, especially in combat, right? Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I'd love to ask your wife for the better part of 20 minutes what she was going through in that phone conversation. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a, it's the, get it, being on the receiving end has got to be the most helpless feeling. If you felt helpless after telling her that, she must oh, have yeah. felt completely uh, oh. over the, oh, oh, yeah. just overwhelmed with helplessness. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll get into more of that later on in the story because it, it gets worse for okay. her. <laughs> All right, keep later, going. But it's it, that part of the story comes after uh, comes afterwards. But so you're, you're, you're uh, right now. You're it, hunkering down, waiting for something to happen. You yeah, get new, and, so, we, and we just sat there. Okay, uh, we sat there for like two hours, and I, um, and there was just like nothing. Finally, our uh, platoon leader, you know, he keeps going back every now and then. He top out, go check on the other bunker, make sure they're all right, but. Eventually, just like I'm gonna go and in, go into the talk and check on uh, Merc Chat or and see if I got any updates on what's going on. Right? Because he said from eleven to like the three, and it was getting it was getting close that time. So he goes in there and checks. And when um, later, when I heard his story, he said when he got in there, he looked at there and he said he saw in the chat it said ICBMs inbound from Iran. And as soon as he was in there and read that, that's when he heard the sound going over the loudspeaker. It's like, incoming, 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 take shelter, take shelter, take shelter. So and it's almost as soon as that goes off, that's when the first one hit. And so you didn't, you didn't about, even have time to crap your pants after hearing that? No. It, it's, as soon as it's like, incoming, 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 take shelter, take shelter, take shelter, and then think of like the loudest explosion you've ever heard in your life. Any firework you've ever heard, multiply it by like a hundred. Yep. It just like, like it it went boom. The ground shook. Like the ground like, you know, shook underneath you. The air vibrated. And this one hit five hundred meters away from us. Wow. Um so it was the platoon leader and the maintenance officers, the ones that went in the talk. I almost. By the way, for, for for civilians, that's not close. Like if you can feel it from that far away, that is a massive size of munitions. Yeah. If you're um, 500 meters away, and you still get all that repercussion, uh, or I'm sorry, concussion uh, from it. Yeah. You know, you just that's a huge, yeah. huge explosion. Yeah. Yeah. The ground was the ground shook. The air vibrated, and. You, I can't even describe that feeling of the first one. And the only thing that goes through my through my thought is, "Oh man, this is real." Yep. Because when I was in Afghanistan, I've heard I've heard mortars go off, and they sounded like you know little pops compared to this. It's just like you know those sound like fire like fireworks going off. You know, just little little booms, and it's nothing. This was just unbelievable. And as soon as that goes off, our maintenance com- officer comes into the bunker. Um, you know how the bunkers are kind of set up, and they have um, it's just one of those um, cement barriers covered with sandbags, and then they have the uh, other cement barrier in front. So he jumps around the side. I'm laying right in, on the front door, and he pretty much jumps on top of me, and he goes. They just hit Bravo ramp, which is the next ramp down on the other side of the fart from us. 
And as soon as he says that, that's when another one hits, the one that hits right next to us. And um, I know I'm getting this wrong, but this is how I remember it. Um, as soon as he says that, that's the one that hits 100 meters from us. And as soon as it hits, it just, you know, it's the loudest boom I've ever heard in my life. Instantly, the air is just full of smoke and dust. I felt a concussion wave, like, smack me directly in the face. Um, I kind of go kind of just like taken back say a few words I probably shouldn't have and (laughs) and I'm like and I'm and he's just like are you alright I'm like yeah I think so and he and and all of a sudden all of us in the bunker are trying to figure out what happened because like what it what did it hit we think it hit the talk, which is like, you know, 30 meters from us. And finally, after a few minutes, we realized that it hit the uh, our maintenance hangar, which is 100 meters away. Um, because we see, we, I can look up through the door of the, uh, of the bunker and we see flames shooting up through it. Um, and we see flames and spark and smoke just spewing um, above us as um, as this thing is just cooking our hangar and just burning um, then we after a few minutes we start hearing small round, small arms rounds start firing we're like what's going on and then it took us a few minutes to realize that uh, we had a connex in there where we stored the small a bunch of small oh, arms and they a were bunch cooking of flares. Off, yeah <laughs> yeah a bunch of flares for the helicopters and it's you know, and they start cooking off because we start hearing pop, 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 and we're like, "Oh man, is the, are they coming over the? Are they coming over the?" Uh, right, that would have been your first thought. Or, was there a ground attack coming after? That was our, that was yeah. our first thought. Yeah, well, that's that was normal. our first thought. Are they coming over? They're like, "Oh no, this, those are just the rounds cooking off from the hangar." They're like, "Oh, good." <laughs> but, you know, that that's a relief. <laughs> but it's still the smoke's going over top of it. Some of it's rolling through the bunker through us and then you know that goes on so it's kind of a little bit kind of quiet for now because just three and you know i said before i was wrong because when you actually saw the see the drone footage later Mm -hmm. that's actually the third missile that hits that hits us but i don't even remember the second one ah gotcha okay (laughs) i don't know you see the you watch the drone footage there's it's there's the one that hits bravo ramp one hits Charlie ramp, and then we're on Voodoo ramp. Is the third missile? For some reason, I don't remember. I don't remember the uh, the second missile. Gotcha. And so how, how long- I don't know if that's from the concussion, right? Or if it's just the um, is- you know how you you know you don't remember uh, an incident. You only remember like the main thing that affects you. Parts of like- it, sure. Yeah, within your yeah. kind of sphere of influence. Um, that that was the closest one that hit to you. Were there, yeah? Were there any other and ones then, that were closer that close to you, or no? No. Okay. That was the only one. That was one that was closest to us, 100 meters. Then the one on Charlie Ramp is probably about 500 meters, like the first one. Right. And then the next, then I think there actually might have been one, another one after the, uh, um, the one that hit us. I think there was four in the first mm-hmm. uh, barrage. 
it hit 500 meters away that one hit right near the chow hall gotcha. which was a bit about 500 meters away but we're so, concentrating on the one that's 100 meters away right. so i don't remember really remember that one either so All in total it's 15 missiles that yeah. hit the base how long yeah. does the attack last from what you remember uh, about about two hours so those 15 missiles were the course so, of over two hours yeah, so there's a barrage. Oh, wow. They would have like a 15 minute break, and then they'd call um, incoming, incoming, incoming. Take shelter, take shelter, take shelter, and then more would hit, and they would hit different places on the base. And then you'd have a break. 15 minutes later, incoming, 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 um, and then more would hit. So it was over the course of like two hours that the whole barrage lasted. So, you know, that kind of like messes with your head that any minute, you know, that if one of those hits, you know, within 50 meters of it, you're probably going to die. Um, so, you know, every time you hear that incoming, knowing how powerful those things are and to give you a, uh, kind of a picture of what those missiles look like, imagine three telephone poles strapped together with a thousand pound warhead over there, a thousand pounds of high explosive. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and again, it's, uh, having lived it's, through that several times, you know, we had what was called a JDAM and it would set off an alarm and it wouldn't say incoming, just go, wah, 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 you know, and that was mm-hmm. a signal for you to go take cover. Um, when that barrage comes, it is, you know, all you can do is hope you're not in the wrong place. Like, and that is Pretty just, much. that is, that is like, I'm in a bunker. I'm theoretically supposed to be protected. How am I in the wrong place? Because you're in the wrong yeah. place. And that's all you yeah, can boil it down to. Yeah, that bunker's no protection. That, that bunker was for a mortar. Yes, it you was know, not, it was not meant for an ICBM missile. Right. Yeah, that that missile would have went for, right through the bunker uh, and left a big hole in the middle of it and, and obliterated everything underneath oh, yeah. it. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah when you saw the, uh, the crater that this thing created, that created, it was... It was ten feet deep and thirty feet across, wow. and through and that was through. Um, that was on the uh, on the ramp on the aircraft ramp, and that's uh, eighteen feet of concrete and rebar. So that's it was incredible. Like and, and the, the amazing hole. part is, is that not a single American soldier was killed in the attack. Oh yeah, um, and for the most part, they I think they hit what they were aiming at. Because they they hit hangars, they hit structure, and they hit areas where helicopters or planes should have been if they were there. So you know, it's not like they it's not like they missed. So if they would have targeted like housing areas, they probably would have killed people. That's my thoughts on it. So if people would have been in those hangars, they would have killed people. But right, right. we were in bunkers. We were in place. You know, we were in places where they didn't fire them at. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so let's let's kind of unpack what the rest of what happens next. Well, I shouldn't say what happens next. It's sort of the process of this thing. Is anybody, while you're there, and, and let me start here, actually. When do you officially leave that deployment? You got there in December 2019. When do you leave? Um, it's like, you know, 10 months later. Okay, so we're talking about like October of, of 2020. So you yeah. finish you finish out the rest of the deployment. At any point in time during that deployment, is anybody talking about 
injuries sustained, purple hearts, things oh, yeah. of that nature. From oh, yeah. the, okay, so it happens oh, yeah. fairly quickly because I mean, I'm sure people got hit with uh, was anybody shrapnel result just kind of TBI injuries. Um, TBI injuries. Um, our platoon leader was actually was outside the bunker, like I mentioned when the when the one hit 100 meters away from him. it knocked him off his feet. Um, it knocked him off his feet. Um, he had a severe concussion, um, and he got a purple heart in Walter Reed, and so they put us all in for purple hearts right after the event. So we were all diagnosed with. Uh, traumatic brain injuries everybody in the bunker you were diagnosed um, in iraq though correct in iraq okay so um we had so a little bit of they weren't prepared for a mass cow of tbis it took a long time to get every, pretty much everybody that was left on that base for screened for tbis so since we were a medical since being a uh, medevac we had a lot of medical personnel so we were able to be screened by our one of our flight nurses and our flight surgeon and the 160th, uh, the special forces helicopter unit, they were right next to us. So their flight surgeon came over and helped. So he helped screen us for TBIs. And so they were able to get all that documentation down to the uh, base hospital, which kind of sped up the process a little bit for us, but it still was 72 hours after the event that I got my screening. And so, which, isn't ideal. They want it within 24 hours of being, uh, having a TBI, but you know, it still took 72 hours and, um, three people from us got their purple hearts right away. They were all okay. put in for purple hearts within, it took a month to get all the paperwork submitted because that takes a little bit of time to get everything, everybody to write up their statements and mm-hmm. to get it up, sent up through the chain of command. And, um, so it took a month to get everything submitted, and then three people got their Purple Hearts while on deployment. Um, the two people that were evacuated because they were um, the platoon leader because he was evacuated to Walter Reed because he had a more severe brain injury because he was outside of the bunker. Our platoon sergeant, because he's had concussions before, and he had PTSD before um, before this because of his time as a medic at other times serving in Iraq and it just really affected him. And, you know, I feel real bad for him. He's a great guy. And he got, he was sent to Fort, he was evacuated to Germany and then eventually sent to Fort Campbell and he received his purple heart, um, from that. And then our, uh, one of our flight nurses, she was evacuated to Germany because she was still having sleep issues and other stuff from the TBI. And then she eventually came back. And it seemed like everybody that got their Purple Heart were people that were evacuated out of country. Okay. And so was that, that a feeling like... The, and that seemed to be the criteria. Okay. If you're evacuated out of country, you got a Purple Heart. If you received the same injury and you, were, and you weren't evacuated out of country, yours was denied. Even though you received the exact same injury. I was literally laying on top of my platoon sergeant in the bunker. Like my, like I was, he was laying, like I was laying on top of his like legs. My legs were, my, my shoulders were on top of his legs when we were in the bunker. And my brain injury is exactly this is, I wouldn't say exactly the same, but my brain injury is the same brain injury he was diagnosed with be the exact same injury. But just because of how the medical paperwork and he got evacuated, 
because of he had a pre it aggravated a previous injury that he had and he was evacuated because of it. Right. Um, so the commanding general signed off on his. Okay, and that's that's the level where it had to go to the commanding general in Iraq at the time, correct? Correct. That's okay. where it got denied. At. So the, the the commanding, I mean, along the way, was everybody in the chain of command supportive of all of you guys who oh, weren't yeah. evac saying sign this, sign this, sign yeah. this, and the CJ was the oh, only yeah. one who said no. Did you yeah, ever? A, did you ever see the justification the as to why? No. No, I've got the paperwork um, signed by my battalion commander and. Uh, our brigade commander, the uh, the lieutenant colonel and the colonel. The colonel came down and says, yeah, we're putting you all in for Purple Hearts, uh, Colonel Fix. And he's the one that after all this was over with, um, kept fighting for us to get our Purple Hearts. Just out of curiosity, was uh, the, was that colonel a National Guard colonel or was he active duty? He's a National, he's a national Guard colonel out of Minnesota. Gotcha. He was, okay. That's where our brigade was from. Gotcha. Okay. So, and, and I just said, battalion and brigade. Sure. But obviously the CG was a active duty guy. Yep. Uh, I think he's now the current commander of Fort Hood. But yeah, he, he was the uh, sitcom oh. commander. <laughs> Interesting. Um, okay. Uh, I'll put that in the mental memory bank for later. Uh, so <laughs> when you first find out you're getting denied, what is the react? What's your reaction, the general reaction of everybody else? Um. Mad, angry, pissed? Were you like, we're going to fight this? What were you thinking? I really didn't know how to fight it. Right. And um, I look, some of the other guys were definitely more vocal about it than I was. I'm usually pretty low-key, and I'm like, this is very frustrating. Um, you kind of feel like um, I'm injured. I know I'm injured. And you feel like... Um, you're being denied something that you deserve. Like right. Purple Heart's the award that you don't earn, that you, or you're awarded for how that you like. It's like. The, the, well, put it this way. Here's what I was going to say. I'll phrase it this way. Yeah. Like whether it's the Army Achievement Medal or an ARCOM, an Army Commendation Medal, like you can go on a deployment and you can argue, I did ARCOM work, right? Like this is a level of an ARCOM, you can argue that. And subjectively, yeah. Somebody else could say no and say, this is our com work, right? But with a Purple yeah. Heart, just the, like you had received, you had the same exact injury write-up as the guy who got on the plane and got medevaced. You both had the same exact injury, and that is the criteria for which one receives a Purple Heart. Well, it, you've met the same exact criteria. We're not talking about two exactly written the same ARCOMs. Yeah. We're talking about two write-ups for archives that are completely different. In yeah. your case, the write-up would be justified the same medically because a medical doctor said it's exactly the same. And here's and here's also the kicker. I had the choice to be evacuated or not. It's like the doctor like asked me, he's like, do you want to be evacuated? Because there was a time when I, uh, a month after the uh, injury, when I went for my uh, one-month checkup, I was having severe headaches. And... Um, and one of the doctors, like actually two of the doctors wanted to evacuate me to Germany. He's like, you need to go to Germany, get yourself right, and possibly get sent home. And for some crazy reason, this other doctor looked at my eyes and thought he saw something. And there's an optometrist in Baghdad. And they ended up medevacking me to Baghdad to see this optometrist. And it turns out the eye thing he thought he saw ended up being not an issue. And that I issue that he thought me saw was the only thing that stopped me from being evacuated to Germany. It was like, and then he ended up putting me on concussion protocol and 
Um, I was put on quarters in my room for three days without, you know, with lights off, no phones and putting me on a whole bunch of headache medic, medic, uh, medication and right. actually helped my headaches immensely and got me back to where I could actually do my job. Right. Now, so there, there are a couple of things that play. Here. I was, you know, I was, you know, all I had to do was say, no, send me to Germany and I would have gotten my Purple Heart. Right, day. right. And, and so there's, a, so couple, there's that, a couple of things that play here that are this, important, right? There's this. So with, all I had to do was make one statement and I would have gotten a Purple Heart. It would have been, been a heck of a lot easier. There would have been a much less resistance. Yeah, so just but, for that, for saying one sentence, to get a Purple Heart versus not getting a Purple Heart, that kind of makes you go, oh, it's bureaucracy. It has nothing to do with my injury. Sure. And that kind of, that, that's that's what's kind of made me more frustrating. Right. And the other part that is sort of beaten into us is that, no, because if you say, yes, medevac me, it's almost like we're taught to believe we're quitting, right? That we are yeah. we're walking out on everybody else, that, that oh, yeah. we're not toughing it out like everybody else, that we, we you know, yeah. unless the doctor unequivocally says, nope, he's medevac, we're not even having this conversation. You know, yeah. that's the only way it, it's acceptable for you to leave that the doc would, uh, it, when you could say, I wanted to stay, but the doc made me go. If they give you a oh, choice yeah. and you choose yes, there is this general sentiment that you're not a tough guy. Right. And and that is a oh, yeah. that is a sort of mentality that we have to start to pivot and shift from, because for as much as our manpower is our easiest replaceable commodity, that doesn't mean it should be our most disposable commodity. Right. Like. We need to take oh, yeah. care of the people in uniform as best we can to keep them in uniform uh, and keep them in service in uniform. So there's a lot of that at play, which sort of contributes because I'm sure as a you know uh, a junior NCO, you're sitting there going, "Well, I'm, I can't set that example for. I can't quit. I can't walk out. Right? What are my soldiers going to think? What What is the, the platoon leader and the platoon? Well, they were gone, but what's the company commander and the first sergeant going to think? If I decide to do this, they're going to look at me sideways. So we're almost forced to stay in a situation where we needed more evaluation, where we needed more to be looked at to diagnose, and we say no. Right? I understand that. I mean, that's you know, it's a double-edged sword. It's bad, but it's good. It's good, but it's bad. And uh, I'm not sure where where to strike that balance. It's different for everybody. Oh yeah, it's so, definitely a balance. When so when you first get denied, how, where are you in the deployment? Four months in, five um, months in, probably about probably about halfway about through. halfway through. So, do you, yeah. After you get denied, are you going the next six months fighting this thing, or you do most? Of you just say say la vie and and it is what it is, and we'll just. Um, there's, I know there's nothing we can do at our level. I'm a, at that time an E five. What right. am I going to do as an E five? Um, our, uh, I know our. Uh, they pushed up the chain of command or the Colonel comes back down and said, he's going to try and fight for it. He's going to try and appeal. And at the end of the deployment, the, what he says to us, maybe the best thing you can do is try and appeal it through your state. Yeah. Maybe go back to the guard, go back to your individual states and try and maybe push it that way through your S one or something like that. And maybe, um, try that way. And, and unfortunately though, here's the, here's the rub in that. Nobody in your state can actually sign off on the Purple Heart, right? Like, if you could handle it internally, yeah. nobody in your state could do it because it's got to go up to the Department of the Army for official approval because that yeah. level of award needs that level of approval. Uh, and and yeah. as you said, typically it's not difficult to get because the barometer – or the, the barometer – the measuring stick for you know getting a Purple Heart is pretty cut and dry. 
if you were injured yeah. to a certain extent, the Purple Heart sort of comes with it. It's just there. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, uh, that's the problem with going back to your state at that point in time is that you're still appealing to a higher authority outside the state regardless. Yeah. So the only way, the only thing I was hoping is that we'd be outside of that one general who denied us. So I know there's a lot of talk that there was some political motivation with uh, President Trump trying to downplay the the injuries, injuries which uh, I'm not sure how much I believe on that because I don't know how much it was would have been a call from the presidential level or how far down that would go because I not I know that he you know or how you know it was like. I can't imagine that he say deny purple hearts or it'd be, you know, some lower level aide saying, you know, you know, try and make this as, you know, because he did say there was no casualties, but he did say that before I, I even got my TBI screening. That was, you know, there's nobody injured, just a few headaches. Look, I can sort of put this on both sides in, in fairness, oh, yeah. right? At oh, yeah. that level, at that level, let's just forget the even presidential level, forget oh, the yeah. even Department of Defense level, forget the Department of the Army level, even at the level of, you know, CENTCOM level, I would brief that as no major injuries, sir, no major injuries, ma'am, we're good to go, right? And then yep. handle it at the lower level. That's the way, if I was the CG, okay, mm-hmm. close, not there yet, but close, uh, if I was, <laughs> if I was a, that's the way I would brief it. If, if the president wants to know what the status is. No major injuries. Everybody here is good. We've, we've got some, some low-level injuries that we can take care of at our level, but there, no need to report any injuries up. We came out of it relatively unscathed, is what I would say. And then I would handle it at the lower level. Now, that doesn't mean at the lower level I would ignore the validity of a Purple Heart. Like, that, that's asinine. That's stupid. Yeah. Right? I mean, oh, yeah. there's a, p- p- politics aside, I have no problem with the president saying there were no major injuries because... Comparatively speaking, I, I've been to combat with major injuries, lost limbs, lost life, you know, uh, burned bodies. I mean, th- th- those are major injuries. OK, the TBI yeah. is a major injury in a minor category, if that makes sense. I have a TBI. Yeah. Right. Um, and so it's one of those things where most of you are going to function through day to day life normally. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have some hiccups, some challenges along the way that most average citizens wouldn't. Because you have a TBI, that to me is is uh, the best classification. I personally, that's Mark's personal clarification, not like a medical distinction or anything like that. But I, again, I say all that to understand. I understand both sides of the ledger, and bringing up that you bringing up the fact that there is political motivation behind it. Okay, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But I don't think the president at the time mischaracterized it. I don't. I oh, don't yeah. disagree that that it, it was no yeah. major injuries. There were no major injuries. You know, I mean, loss I of life is 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 the kind of barometer. Yeah, but I can also see people saying like, oh, 135 Purple Hearts. You know, you said there's no major injuries. He's like, and then it's them because, saying, oh, there's... Right, it's because of the, the connotation that comes with a Purple Heart, right? Like, yep. everything has to be severe, uh, and that's that's yeah. not the case. I knew a guy who was awarded a Purple Heart during a mission um, in Iraq. He was the driver of a Humvee, um, and the Humvee hit a pothole. And dove straight like a major, like a hole from a, a, a previous hole from a, an explosion, but went right into it and got into a bad accident. And they, they awarded him a Purple Heart. Nobody, nobody had an issue with it. Guy got injured in combat. He was on a combat mission. I mean, that's mm-hmm. pretty standard, right? Oh yeah. 
Not glorious, yeah. not glamorous. No one's going to write a book <laughs> about it, but it is what it is. So you go through the rest of the deployment, you get home, okay? What are you hearing back at your state, and what are they saying to you about sort of pushing this thing forward? It's like I, there's a couple people I'm able to talk to because being in aviation, I have some good friends that are uh, a little bit higher ranking than me, so I talk to them about it, and I'm getting nowhere. I don't even know where to go. So I'm kind of – our half our battalions deployed because they um, replaced us. So I'm kind of actually waiting till they get back because that's where I actually a lot of the brass that I do know that could actually probably help me out is currently in Iraq and Kuwait at the time. So I'm like, I'm going to wait till they get back so that actually the people that I do know that could possibly help me, um, um, that I can talk to them. So, like, a sergeant major that knows, like, everybody in the state, um, he could help me. So, that's who I was waiting to. He got back. I was going to talk to him. So, he could direct me where to go, who to talk to, and he could put in a good word for me. And I know I talked to him when I redeployed from when I met him in Kuwait. I talked to him, and he said he would help me out. And I talked to a couple other people, like uh, like my lieutenant colonel I know, and he said he'd help me out. But they couldn't do anything in Kuwait, so I'd wait till they got back to Ohio. And so that was my plan. It was like, wait till they get back so that I actually have some higher brass to help me out because I can't do anything as an E5, E6. So that was my plan. Was there uh, a point where wait. you felt like it was help, like you, this, this wasn't going to happen, it just wasn't in the cards? Pretty much. I'm like... Pretty much, I was like, um, I kind of resigned myself that I'm probably not going to get it. It's just going to be another, you know, they say the Army screws you over a couple times during your career, and this is going to be another time that I just got screwed over. Does that and make you mad? Just, yeah, it was, like, definitely frustrating. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely kind of mad, telling that I deserve something that I didn't get. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits that go with a Purple Heart. You know, there's, you know, college scholarships for my kids. Um, you know, there's VA benefits to go with it. Um, I get free license plates here in Ohio. And again, you know, you say that and, and, you know, there's a general sense from people who like necessarily don't understand, like, you know, oh, well, you just want the award for all that stuff. No, no, like no one asks for a purple no. heart. Like no one is running to go get one. Like nobody wanted to sit there. For two hours, while uh, ballistic missiles the size of telephone poles are landing, even within two hundred meters of you, like that's that's not anything anybody willfully signs up for. Like no one goes, "Hey, go stand in the middle of this field. We'll put cement over your head and hope a missile um, the, the size of a telephone pole doesn't hit no. you." What, what would you like to do? Like it's it's not a yeah. gamble that people are willing to take. Like I've, I've told you, it's, it's the award nobody wants, but if you get it, you want it. Right. If, if you're, you, earn, if you're entitled it. to it, you certainly you certainly want it. Um, you know, and again, I mean, there are things uh, that that I, you know, I got into a car accident in Baghdad, too. A pretty bad one. Um, it was never even discussed of giving me a Purple Heart at the time. And I never thought about even asking for it. I didn't I didn't even think it was a thing yeah. because, you know, this was 2005. Of course, things were a lot different than TBIs weren't even a thing back then. Um, but nonetheless, so I, I get it. It's, it's like I never ran towards getting a Purple Heart. Like I, I actually 
Hey, I'm smiling. I didn't get a purple heart. Thank you. I'm, I'm, the, the, the bad stuff that comes with a purple heart probably outweighs everything that is oh, good yeah. about getting a purple heart. Um, yeah, I'd rather not have headaches and migraines every you know, three times right. a week than I'd exactly. gladly give back the purple heart and not have these injuries. And pay for your license plates. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll pay the, you know, 60 bucks a year and right. you know, um, license plate fees. So what happens next is that um, it takes, you know, a while, but some of the other guards that were, that were with you started getting awarded them, correct? Um, here's kind of what happened was um, I got an email from, it was actually forwarded to me from my company commander. And he said that everybody that was denied a Purple Heart in Iraq was being resubmitted. Um, this was uh, Veterans Day, right uh, right, around, right before Veterans Day of, uh, what was that, 2021? Are you thinking this is a waste yeah. of time? No. I'm like, okay. good. And I'm like, awesome. I'm like, and I saw my name on the list. I'm like, I'm a they said everybody's being everybody's being relooked at, and it was an um, email from Colonel Fix, the guy from the Colonel from uh, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. He's um, getting everybody. It's everyone's getting re-put in. I'm like, awesome because I've already talked to a few people and I was wasn't going anywhere in the state. So I'm like, okay, maybe there's a chance. So, um, and. I saw there was like three different, uh, two different lists. There was a list with a whole bunch of names on it, and then a list with eleven names on it. And I'm on the list with eleven names. I'm like, all right. Is that the good <laughs> list or the bad I, list? So I don't know what's separate <laughs> with these two lists, but <laughs> all right. So um, this was so a story in USA Today came out on Veterans Day, 2021, and announcing that they're going to. Uh, relook at all the purple hearts and so and it was then they talked about uh these other soldiers from like minnesota and some active duty people and that and the process how they contacted congressmen and i think one through florida and a couple other states and told their stories about having headaches and a lot of the stuff that i was going through and how they're resubmitting all of them and having all them re-looked at. I'm like, awesome. This actually sounds like it may have a chance. So I was like, I'm really excited about it. So I don't, not sure how long this is going to take. So it's just like everything else, another waiting game. So this was, so the story came out on Veterans Day, which is kind of, you know, I know they were waiting for Veterans Day to do that. So it makes a good story. So <laughs> and fast forward to December and, my one friend, the other guy from Ohio that was in the bunker, not the bunker I was in, but the other bunker, he called me and said, hey, I just got a call from the Department of the Army. It says my Purple Heart's been approved. Whoa. I'm like, what? He's like, he's like, yeah. I'm like, I didn't get a phone call. He's like, yeah, they told me they wanted to give me a call before the news article uh, dropped. And then another USA Today article came out and they said, oh, um, all these uh, Purple Hearts have been approved, and they're still waiting on 11 to be approved. So oh. I go back and pull up that email. I count the number of names. I'm like, oh, there's are on the list. That's the bad list. Yeah, now we figured <laughs> out that was the bad list. list. How yeah. do I make this list? I'm like, don't tell me that 
all these are going to be approved and 11 are going to be and i'm like this guy you know you know we're in the same not we weren't we're using the other bunker but i'm looking at the 11 names and they're all pretty much people that are um in the bunker with me and some of them are in the bunker with him i'm like if his got approved mine's got to have been approved because all of our all of ours pretty much say the same thing i don't know how his get approved on my case so it's still a waiting game. So I finally sit down and I wait. And um, it seemed like it's like the longest three weeks of my life <laughs> until finally um, I'm sitting there. Um, at, uh, it was actually on a Monday um, where I'm not working for the guard, but I'm working at my uh, fishing lure shop. And um, I get a phone call from Fort Knox and it's like, Hey, this is so-and-so sergeant from, uh, the rec awards department. And, uh, they're like your purple heart's been approved. And I was like, I'm gonna start crying. Get a little emotional uh, here. That's awesome, man. Listen, no, get, get emotional, <laughs> bro. That's awesome. I mean, that's listen, like, I mean, it, it's tears of relief. I would assume, right? Like, oh, you yeah. know, like you're just like, Hey, like, you know, it, it's been so long and, um, I've been living with all these symptoms and everything that hasn't gone away and damn, man. I mean, this is at least acknowledgement that, Oh yeah. It's like my injuries are real. Yes. And somebody, uh, actually acknowledges that it happened. Not that the attack didn't happen, but the injuries happened because like a TBI is like, no one sees it. Right. No one, no one can see, no one sees by migraines. You can't, like, if you lose a limb, people see you lost a limb. Like, mm-hmm. no one sees, you know. No one knows unless, when, when you're when you're dizzy to the point where you just need to lay down, where you're nauseous, where you feel yeah. like you're going to throw up, where, you're, where your oh, head yeah. is just pounding. I mean. Oh, yeah. They don't, they don't know like, that. Yeah, like, you know, my wife, my wife sees it because, you know, she's at home with me. It's like, um, like, I don't know how many people said, like, I tell, like, you know. The VA lists me as 90% disabled. I don't look 90% disabled probably 90% of the time. Right. But that 10%, you know, that 10%, yeah, is like I tell people, when I'm good, I'm good. When I'm not good, I'm not good. Sure. So, and that's, that's the way, it, and that's the way, like, uh, a TBI is. It's like, and especially with the migraines and all that, it's like, you know, especially in the evenings when I've had a long day and it's like, mm-hmm. it hits you hard. Do you know uh, sort of who the catalyst was that helped push this over the top? Um, biggest one I know is Colonel Fix. And okay. um, just from reading the USA Today articles, um, I don't know if they just um, – I can't remember her name. It was uh, – I think it was a uh, Air Force sergeant um, who contacted her congressman. But I know Colonel Fix was the main driver, at least with uh, the Army side of it. I mean – do you feel like it says that there is something systemically wrong with our system that unless we go get a congressman involved, uh, who for whatever reason, congressmen scare the ever loving shit out of uh, tags uh, and adjutant generals and, and generals and just in generals in general, uh, for whatever reason, it, it takes congressmen who have never put on a uniform to get the military and the army to act, uh, to do what they know is right and, and what they know should be uh 
do huh? for soldiers. Yeah, I mean, like it's just. I I hope it's an outlier because you know I hope the system's not broken. Right. But it's like because especially with TBI, it's kind of a it's like a newer injury injury that they're recognizing for purple hearts. So a lot of people don't know about it. So you feel like you know there is this this uh, you know problem with the system. Well, it's not a problem with the system, but you know it's. I, I hope you're right that the system isn't broken. I just know from being around it a long time, the system isn't broken. It's the actors within the system who believe that they are entitled to make decisions about things that they're not really entitled to make decisions about. You know, like when it yeah, comes down to it, if a medical report says you have a TBI and we are handing out Purple Hearts or TBIs for one guy, then there shouldn't be a general being able to sit there and sign it off and say, nope, I disapprove because the medical report says otherwise. Right. Like that is a decision yeah, like, that is not should not be left up to a, a commander who doesn't need to get involved in that decision. Exactly. It should just be, OK, yes, there's an injury. Sign the box. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that difficult. A Purple Heart there essentially be, is a go, no go event. Either you have an injury or you yeah. don't <laughs> like it, it's not it's. It's just, again, it, it sort of bothers me. And we've seen this bureaucracy a little bit um, unfold, particularly when it comes to the National Guard and the reserves, right? It's harder to get these awards through because there's a there, there's a commanding general sitting there saying, well, I've got all these active duty guys who were shot at and their vehicle got this and they got one. And I didn't hand out Purple Hearts to them. What am I handing out these guard guys for? Like, that is also another, you know, overriding philosophy that I think is just stupid. Yeah. Uh, another case of them looking down on the National Guard guys, where uh, we do the exact same job. You could argue I'm biased, but again, I've been in the active duty realm enough in my career um, that you know th- th- there there are plenty of really good guard soldiers out there. Uh, just because they yeah. chose to do something else with their life doesn't mean um, that they're any less of a of, of a service member and a person in uniform. Um, when you uh, when you look back on all this, um, you know, do you feel like this sort of puts a capstone on your on your military service like is this sort of the cherry on top yeah it did because um it kind of uh in a way because um like my last drill was my purple heart ceremony and i was medical i was medically retired like two days afterwards i got the uh, orders to you know my or my retirement orders like and then I didn't have enough time for the next drill, so it was kind of like everything culminated in my entire military career, where everything for the last day of my drill was all about me, which is kind of weird. So <laughs> it's yeah. like everything yeah. built up to this like one event. So I served for you know twenty two years, and I was able to kind of leave on a high note. And um, I guess the one thing about receiving the purple heart delayed and having it back the ceremony back here in Ohio is my family got to come, my parents, right, my sure. grandpa, my wife. So otherwise I received a purple heart in Iraq, you know, just the people I served with, which would have been great too, but it was a little bit, you know, kind of special receiving it here. You know, it was kind of frustrating all that I had to go through to get it, but in a way it kind of, was nice receiving it here so there was kind of some pros and cons to it so you know i got 
you know, my wife got to be there. My kids got to be there. My family got to see it. So that was kind of special. So, you know, there were some good things, good things about it. But, and, you, and you get a closer parking spot now at most stores, right? Oh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but it's, I have to wait a whole year for my license plates to expire to get new ones, though. Oh, really? Did you? Okay. Well, I'm glad. I'm, again, I'm glad they're free. Um, you know, when, when you think about, and oh, by the way, uh, in the interim, I found that, uh, that, that, that general's name here, uh, who we were referencing like General earlier. White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lieutenant General White, who now uh, is, as you correctly stated, is running uh, Fort Hood. And he did not comment uh, on the story. Lieutenant General Robert White uh, did yeah. not comment on the story um, and and didn't say why he denied dozens of Purple Hearts following the attack. Um, you know, I, I, if you could meet with him face to face today, what would you say? I don't know. I never really thought about it. I would just kind of ask him why. And I don't, and I have no idea what he would say or just, you know, ask him what his thought process was. And, you know, I don't know if I'd expect an honest answer though. You know? (laughs) Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, you know, because like, there's officers that I've grown up with or grown up to the military with um, that I've known for a long time that I respect highly and that I that have always treat me, treated me fairly. And there's other ones that I, you know, treat with a grain of salt. And, you know, I'm yeah. like, okay, you're just going to give me the political answer and I'm just going to, you know, yes, sir you know, and go about my business and just the issue is is dealing with the paperwork with him. In this case, you win the argument on points, but I'm not sure that matters. Right. Like, and that's, that's the frustrating part. Yeah. I was like, I don't, because again, I don't even know if I want to even talk. I don't even know if I would ask the question. Really? Wow. The bygones be bygones and just, happy that I got what I deserve and just let it be because it'd be probably more frustrating than to have answers. Well, that's true. I mean, the the frustrating part for me uh, as an officer um, and somebody who still wears the uniform and, you know, I've said this repeatedly. I mean, the right thing should not be that hard. Um, Sometimes the right thing is hard to do. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Um, There is, there are hard rights over easy wrongs and I'm not saying they're wrong, Mm -hmm. but you know, taking care of soldiers, uh, giving awards to soldiers who deserve it are easy things that are the right thing to do. Uh, and, and, and it bears no resemblance on you whatsoever as the leader who signs the award one way or another. I mean, that's that's the thing. Again, uh, it's one thing to do something with knowledge of fraudulent behavior ahead of time. Right. It's another thing You know, that individual's career is none affected whatsoever. By signing no. approve on all those purple hearts, none whatsoever. You're the hero. You're the good guy. You deny them all, and now every time you Google his name, this story will come up, where we don't have an answer as to why he denied purple hearts to people who rightfully deserve them. Uh, and and yeah, doesn't that seems like a bad that outweighs the good? But you know, what do I know? I mean, I'm never going to yeah. put on a star. So what do I, what do I know? 
and you lost perspective of a lot of NCOs. Yeah, like and that's because, you know, uh, it's it's you for, know for what me, to say from a, you know I'm it's an frustrating. E6. I was an E six, but if I was still in, and say he takes over my installation, what are my thoughts about him? Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, like I've never met the guy personally. What do I know about him? And and that's that's the that's the other frustrating part. You know, if you'd like to deny it. You know, you owe people an explanation. Yeah. Right? Like, you, it's it's one thing to... But to stroke a pen blindly on 80 people and say, you don't deserve this, um, without yeah. ever meeting them, without ever talking to them, without ever understanding their side of the story, that to me is also seems like a flaw in leadership. But again, that's just one man's perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially like... Yeah, like I said, it's like, you know... Like you're coming at it from an officer, and I'd be coming at it from an NCO perspective. Is when we see leadership like that, is we'd kind of, in a way, kind of write write the officer off as not caring and not mm-hmm. taking care of us. And it's a whole lot easier just to move on. And because there's a lot of times we can't do anything about an officer. No, it's you no. Know, it's like we're not in the position. It's just like move on. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm not in a position. I'm not in that position. It's just a lot easier just to march on, do your thing, and you know. And so look, I don't me, know. I'll state one more position here, and that I think is important, and I've held to this throughout my entire career. Um, that I, I think it should be tough to earn certain awards, right? Because if you give them all yeah. out like candy, they hold no value. You know, I, I, I reference my own personal story. My first deployment, I absolutely deserved my Bronze Star. I 100% was proud of my Bronze Star. I feel like I earned it and I did the level mm-hmm. of work that it was required and everything that happened to me was up to a Bronze Star. On my second deployment, the general decided all, 04s and above were all getting Bronze Stars. And I kept telling people, I didn't do Bronze Star work. I know what it is. I know what the level of it is. I don't deserve this. I'd rather have something else that I don't have. Uh, first of all, then a, a repeat of award and I already do have, but it's not fair to just give this to me because it doesn't have the value that my mm-hmm. previous one does. So I, I 100% think that when it comes to awards, if you hand them out like candy, you know, it's supply and demand. Like, uh, yes, oh, yeah. I, I want to like, it'd be great to have a silver star, but they're so hard to get because so few people actually deserve them. Right. If everybody has one, oh, yeah. then it's not cool having a silver star. So, um, you know, that's always been my position, but purple hearts again are a little bit different because, Oh yeah. The standard for them seems a lot more clear cut and dry. Right? We're exactly. not talking about the difference between a distinguished service cross and a silver star and a medal of honor here where you could make, you know, split hairs about what is and what isn't and the level of this that and the other. That, that that's a different conversation. Either you got injured or you didn't. And if a doctor says you got injured, then you basically meet the requirement to earn yeah. a purple heart. Yeah. And and uh, to me that seems very, <laughs> you know, yeah. um Seems yeah, a lot, you lot got simple. injured, and it was by the enemy. Yes. Those are the two qualifications. There you go. <laughs> really simple stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. well, you know, look. That you, definitely you, wasn't one of our missiles. No. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've, we've dealt with that before. Uh, yeah, we don't hand out awards for the people who do that, by the way. Uh, they get different pieces <laughs> of paper. Uh, anyway, so, um, you know, you, you finished your military career. Uh, you're, you're, you're a full-time outdoorsman right now. You run a, a uh, what, do you, what do you call it, a fish shop, like a bait and tackle shop? What, 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 what's the... Oh, uh, we make fishing lures. Fishing so lures. I, a fishing lure business. 
That's a good yep. way. To, that's a good thing to do in retirement, man. Oh yeah. So uh, we bought this uh, fishing lure company uh, about a year ago, over a little over a year ago. Um, kind of saw the writing on the wall that I was going to be medically retired. So um, me and my brother and my cousin kind of fell into this business. We saw this company. We used to fish these lures when we were in high school. And we saw the company was for sale, and one thing led to another, and we decided to buy it. And it is the first soft plastic uh, fishing lure company. The guy that invented the rubber worm founded this company back in 1946. Wow. And it's moved places over the years, and uh, the last place it was ran was Valparaiso, Indiana, DeLong Lures. David DeLong invented the rubber worm. And it was been out of business since 2010. And the guy had it in his garage, all the molds and all the, pretty much the business was shut down and he had it for, up for sale. So he ended up buying it and moved it back to where it started in Akron, Ohio. Huh. Now we have, now we have a little shop in Canal Fulton and we make lures and we sell them on our website, and we have a, and we sell them on Amazon. I can tell you hundred uh, percent as a New York kid, I literally have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Um, so I will, <laughs> I will leave, I will leave you to your expertise there. But you also wrote three books: Why We Hunt, The Deer Stand Devotional, and uh, When the Red River Ran Red. When the, uh, when the so, river ran red. Yeah, when the river so ran red. My, sorry, that's my his, that's my historical book. Gotcha. That's, uh, you guys can get Indian, those. That's the Indian Wars in Ohio. Ah, gotcha. So. Okay, you guys can yeah. get those books on Amazon. Um, and uh, Aaron, it has been great talking to you. I, I, I loved hearing this story. I'm so happy for you, all your fellow guardsmen, and everybody there who was so uh, rightly uh, awarded the medals that you were entitled to uh, through your service. And I certainly appreciate your guys' persistence in this. Um, because, again, I don't think it should be this difficult for something like this um, to be awarded. And, and I don't want, um, you know... Uh, one individual to have that authority um, to be able to say when everybody in the chain of command says yes and one person says no, there seems something that is awry about that uh, more than anything. And so, again, I'm just I'm happy for you uh, and all of your your, your fellow service members who, who got your awards. I, I think it's great, man. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking to you. All right, Aaron Futrell. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.